Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hello and welcome to Out With Susie Ruffon. This is Series 3, Episode 10. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope that you're having a good day whenever you're listening to this. I'm about to go on a run and do some exercise, which I feel relatively positive about. My CrossFit gym's recently opened. Yeah, I'm a CrossFit person. I'm sorry if this is the first time you've realised this. I hope it doesn't mean that you like me less. I just really enjoy it. But I went to my CrossFit gym this week and I felt amazing afterwards, but my whole body does sort of ache now because I haven't really exercised properly for quite a few months. But, um, so that's exactly where I am. You know what I'm like. I like to tell you exactly what I'm doing. It's uh, 9.14 on Sunday morning. I'm in my tiny little cupboard office and I'm very excited to share another episode with you. I've just listened back to this week's episode that I'm about to release and I think it's a really good one. It's really brilliant. Such an interesting conversation. Um, I, I think Sean Fay is brilliant and I absolutely loved chatting to her. As always, I share emails from the lovely listeners at the top of the show. If you want to get in touch, you always can. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Thank you so much to all of you that got in touch after last week's episode with the brilliant Hannah Gadsby. It seemed that episode uh, really meant a lot to a lot of you and a lot of you were hoping that I'd get Hannah on the show and uh, we did and she was absolutely brilliant. So uh, thanks to all of you that got in touch. There were tweets, there were messages. And please feel free to do that. If you enjoy the podcast, let people know, put it out on Twitter, put it out on Instagram, and you can rate and review on podcast apps if that's the type of thing you'd like to do. I'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's kick off with a couple of listener emails as always. Dear Susie, I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time and have been listening to like-minded friends since the very start. That's my podcast with Tom Allen, if you fancy some more podding from me. Um, I've always loved how you and Tom balance light-hearted silliness with more serious aspects of the queer experience. The best way I can think to describe you is you're just so human. Without, even though you touch on more serious areas, you keep a lightness and that humanity that makes it so easy to listen to. Throughout lockdown, I've been searching for things that are fun and easy to listen to, but with a level of substance to make me feel connected to the world. You've given me that so many times and have truly been one of my biggest sources of comfort through 2020. I can't thank you enough. Well, I can't thank you enough for telling me that. Um, My mum and my boyfriend also love out. I'm lucky that my mum and I have always had a really open and comfortable relationship when it comes to my queerness. And the show has prompted some really interesting conversations about growing up and not feeling like everyone else. 
The other thing I really appreciate about Out is how inclusive you are of various LGBTQIA identities, showing the differences and parallels between our experiences. This sense of queer collectivism, recognising our different struggles but coming together to support each other is something we need so urgently right now, in the face of hate groups like the LGB Alliance trying to divide us. I suppose the main thing I wanted to say was thank you for the positivity you bring into the world and for the visibility you're giving to so many sides of the queer community. All the best, David. Um, thank you, David, for getting in touch. Um, I'm really pleased that you're enjoying the podcast so much. Um, and I'm really pleased it's given you some comfort in 2020. As I mentioned last week, it has for me too. And I really try to be as inclusive as possible. There is obviously, there's uh, people that I've reached out to uh, that, that haven't wanted to do the show and people that don't want to, but I do keep reaching out. And I'm really pleased that you appreciate that. I'm constantly trying to make this podcast as diverse and inclusive as possible. And I would continue to always do that. Um, part of the reason I wanted to share David's email is that um, he, he added something at the end that said, uh, throughout 2021, I'm working on a t-shirt campaign called I'm Here, I'm Queer, Pay Me, which is providing opportunities for six LGBTQIA plus artists throughout the year and raising funds to ensure properly paid positions for queer creatives on future live projects. I've pasted a link to May's T below, um, and and the, the, I, I feel like this is something we could all get behind. H how wonderful that there's this campaign to support LGBTQIA plus artists. Um, I'm going to get one. I if you've got the money, if you'd like to support a brilliant uh, grassroots project like this, uh, maybe maybe you want to get one too. The website is www.everpress.com, and then it's forward slash. I'm hyphen here hyphen I'm hyphen queer hyphen pay hyphen me. I mean, I'm sure if you Google it, that was a bit all over the shop from me, but I'm sure if you Google it, t-shirts, I'm here, I'm queer, pay me. Uh, what a brilliant campaign, David. Thank you for reaching out and um, hopefully some people will buy the t-shirt. I'm definitely going to get one. Okay, let's have another email before we get to our brilliant interview today. Here we go. Hi, Susie. I felt compelled to write in hearing Broners followed by Hannah with different parts of their story really resonating. I often felt like the odd one out re coming out as there was no real thought process, internal struggle or difficult conversation for which I'm internally grateful, but have sometimes felt guilty for. But hearing from Brona made me feel a little less alien. I credit this easy revelation to having two wonderful parents who are now retired youth workers. I was brought up with the knowledge that however I turned out, I would be loved with very open, inclusive conversations throughout my childhood. I guess my sexuality took me by surprise somewhat. It wasn't until I was at college when I found out a girl had a slight crush on me that I even contemplated it. But having no fear of my feelings, I jumped in with both feet and had a lightning bolt moment when I realized I'd found what I'd been missing with every guy I'd dated before. There was an instant, ah, this must be what all the books and magazines talk about, butterflies, electricity, the whole shebang. Coming out itself was a relatively simple task. I told my brother and his wife first as my parents were away and got nothing but positivity, apart from an unhelpful comment from my sister-in-law saying that she'd snogged a girl at college. I think I then sent my mum a text about my girlfriend and got a phone call back almost immediately filled with nothing but love. The best conversation and advice from my mum was to not let anyone put me in a box and be true to myself. Fast forward several years and I get to the next point in my story. It really resonated for me hearing Hannah talk about the lack of seeing our story. I guess in this vacuum we fill the gap with what we think should be there. And in the world that we live and the media we consume, this looked to me like a very heteronormative scene. I was 13, married to a woman, and in the midst of fertility treatment when it all came crashing down. Now that's a book in itself, full lesbian EastEnders worthy drama. But my key takeaway 
was that I was living a life that I wasn't necessarily participating fully in. I was on the train of marriage, house, babies, but I felt like I'd sleepwalked here. It wasn't until it all came crashing down that I began to realise I wasn't actually sure that what I had lost was what I had really wanted after all. I was living a narrative the world portrays as the norm. Marriage, babies, death, and not listening to myself anymore. My key learning from this is that it's okay to write your own narrative, and I was reminded again of my mum's important words from years before. Don't let anyone put you in a box. I'm now a few years on of self-reflection and I couldn't be happier. I've been with my wonderful girlfriend for two years now and we're carving our own path. Bemusing people everywhere by not doing the lesbian cliche of moving in together on the second date, but knowing that we will grow old together and feeling more love than I thought was possible. So this may have turned into a slight ramble, but I guess what I really wanted to illustrate was that no one should let anyone else put them in a box and it's okay to write your own story. And if your podcast illustrates anything, it's that we're all wonderful individual beings and there's no right way or wrong way to do gender or sexuality. Thanks for bringing this wonderful podcast to the world. Take care, Jen. And Jen said that I can share her name. Thank you, Jen. What a brilliant thing to share. You're absolutely right. I think so often we do, I mean, that heteronormative thing is so true that we sort of somehow... I don't know, mirror what the heteronormative relationships we see everywhere. And I know some people want that and some people don't, but you're absolutely right. Carving your own path, creating your own story. What a brilliant thing to share. And I'm so pleased that you wrote in. I'm so pleased you enjoy the podcast. And thank you. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing your words with me. Okay, let's get on to today's brilliant interview. Here it is. It's the fantastic Sean Fay. Sean Fay is a presenter, writer, author and podcaster. Her writing is intelligent, thoughtful and often funny. She's written for The Guardian, Vice and Dazed and will soon be releasing her first book, The Transgender Issue, An Argument for Justice. A book about what it means to be trans in a transphobic society. A landmark work that signals the beginning of a new, healthier conversation about trans life. A manifesto for change and a call for justice and solidarity between all marginalised people and minorities. It will be released in September and I for one can't wait to read it. I also want to give a quick plug to her podcast, which I've been listening to all this week. It's called Call Me Mother, where she interviews LGBTQ trailblazers featuring conversations with queer elders. And I know that loads of people have written in saying you need to interview more sort of elder people from the community. Well, there's a whole podcast doing this. So have a look at Sean's podcast, Call Me Mother. It is brilliant. I'm delighted to have her on the show today. Hello, Sean. Hi, Susie. God, that was such a lovely introduction. Thank you. I'm always amazed when people summarise you in that way and you're like wow they sound great let's get that on my dating app bio <laughs> no, if you want me to do if you want me to do the voiceover of your dating app i absolutely <laughs> yes, can please. no worries well i always say i only have people on the podcast that i really want to talk to so i'm delighted that you were up for having a chat today how are you yeah i'm good thank you yeah i'm adjusting to life i went for lunch out al fresco today <gasps> as like part of the new life post initial restrictions so yes. that was both uh, overwhelming but also like I guess a step back to normal life so yeah good yes I know I heard on the podcast you were living back at home with your mum are you still I at home? I am I'm moving back to London I would so say I'm in Bristol at my mum's house where I grew up same teenage bedroom <laughs> posters on the wall same posters <laughs> uh, no, no not quite well we can go into this but actually my posters <laughs> as a teenager were the sacred heart of Jesus and pictures of the Virgin Mary so that's, sure that's okay. where I was yeah, at in I've my teen years I've read a little bit about this don't worry <laughs> um, I'm going to go into that in a bit and I'm moving back to London in three weeks time so that's going to be a huge step too is that I'm moving into a flat on my own I 
I've never lived completely alone before. I'm 33, it's time. And I've really enjoyed spending the lockdown, the pandemic with my family. There was lots of benefits to it and reconnecting and all that sort of stuff. But it's like, I now I'm going to have to adjust to my own space again, which sounds glorious, but also terrifying. Did you feel a bit like a teenager again? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no there's no way you can't. <laughs> there's no way you can't. And the trouble is, is, yeah, I mean, I've always felt like a teenager again because I've moved, I moved back once in my early 20s. And then like also I transitioned in my mid 20s and that makes you like a moody teenager again. So like, I, yeah, and this again. So I think my mum's my kind of used to this idea of an eternal teenager. So I'm ready to prove, mum, if you're listening, I'm an adult. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up in Bristol. Yes. I know I love Bristol like I only know it as a stand-up so I know it as a place it's like a really great place to go and do comedy mm. and a really sort of it feels like a really fun city to be in where things are happening and there's bands and it's quite cool did it feel like that growing up there like I know that you briefly sort of mentioned your religious interests as a teenager which I'm sure <laughs> we're going to get onto a little bit if that's okay yeah but what was it like sort of growing up there did it feel quite a cool place to be it is a cool place to be but I wasn't a cool place to be when I grew up here so <laughs> right, okay. the odd relationship I agree with it completely I love Bristol as a city and I champion it much more now as an adult than I ever did I always was desperate to get away and go to London and live in London and for a variety of reasons I guess it's because it's your hometown so your hometown mm. always feels a bit and yeah I think growing up as a uh, it's such a cliche growing up as a queer person it was that because my teenage life was not the best necessarily I, I came to associate Bristol with my teenage life and now I don't mm-hmm. anymore so I'm kind of quite pro the city although still don't ever really see it as my city in the same way that like, maybe I do with London because it was associated with my teenage life I think that that queer association with maybe negative experiences you just think oh mm. this this place you know and obviously people who grew up in a really suburban place can be like oh it was so bad because it was so suburban and, and backwards and I can't really say that about Bristol but it, I think it's just your experience London was somewhere where like probably I came of age more in terms of my early adulthood late teenage years it was an odd one because like I went to a convent primary school that had been all girls until about four years before I arrived one of many red flags <laughs> about what was to come but it was it wasn't actually in the city of Bristol it was in like a, a small village outside Bristol my mum would drive me every day to this small convent school and it was really like a, something from the from the 1950s it was like in a time war because all the teachers were still nuns it was the early 90s there was one or two lay teachers and everyone else was a nun so it was just like being transported back to another time and it was very idyllic and countryside-like and very innocent. And then I would say my, yeah, my uh, secondary school experience was a public all-boys school in Bristol, which, you know, it's, it's a very privileged way to live, but it wasn't really connected to like what, what's great about Bristol's culture is like Porter's Head and Trip Hop and like, you know, things that come out of like the Afro-Caribbean community here and the diversity. But actually, if you go to like a rigid all-boys school, you don't really get any of that. Going to a convent school, that sounds like something that your mum sort of picked out for you to go there. Was it quite religious at home? No. So actually what was odd is both my parents were from Catholic backgrounds. My father was from a French family, my mother from an Irish one. My mother was from a working class background, but my father was from a privileged French background but my father was an alcoholic himself is still an alcoholic we don't have contact and his parents were both dysfunctional alcoholics who had this very messy divorce he used to be sent from public school to public school he was kind of his father's disgrace his mother was like would forget to pay the fees because her alcoholism would take over so he had this kind of quite sad life but a very Mm -hmm. privileged one my mother had 
a much more kind of loving home, I guess, but a poorer one. So that they were an odd match anyway in terms of class. And so I kind of, in the mix of their two class experiences, came out as like middle class. But my father, I think, he never provided anything for my education. But the one thing he did was set my mother's mind. Like, it would be better to send Sean to like a nice prep school, like this school, I found it, like rather than the local primary school. And because we were Catholic, that was a possibility. So it was my father's kind of class consciousness combining with my mother's like Irish Catholic reverence for nuns, probably, <laughs> that made me end up at this very odd <laughs> beginning of my education. And so then what was... I mean, I've got no idea what it would be like to be at an all-boys public school, you say, an all-boys yeah, public like school. Yeah, a minor public school. Like, it wasn't eaten, but, you know, but there'll be there'll be some posh listeners who are like, what kind of... <laughs> it's, it's both. Yeah. Like, both <laughs> to everyone normal, <laughs> like, it's a public, it's a public school. school. But, like... <laughs> well, I'm sort of fascinated by it. I've got a really good friend that went to Eton, and I sort of, I'm constantly sort of saying to him, like, but, like, what did you do at the end of the day? And where, where, when you slept, was the bedding like? Did you stay there? Was it no, boarding? No, it was boarding, but I was a day boy. It was in Bristol, and it was actually much closer than my primary school. Yeah, I mean, it's an odd one, right? Because, a spoiler alert, I, I am now a trans woman. So, obviously, it was very odd for me to have at 11. I think it was because, yeah, this the school, that the, the convent school I went to gave you, because it was so small and so traditional, and it did all this stuff like teach you cursive handwriting. As I say, it was a time warp was I was kind of a teacher's pet. I was a very sensitive child. I did have a sort of secret performing theatre kid aspect, but day by day I was quite sensitive and shy-ish and, um, yeah, I'm quite quite into religion, actually, like more so than my family. So the nuns loved me, and obviously they were kind of priming me for this, like, fantastic destiny of secondary school. And my secondary school was picked out as, like, probably the best fit because it was, like, known as very academic, blah, blah, blah. So I was kind of... Um, grooming is such a such a loaded term but I was probably yes. primed for it in a way that I never like and and I, and I think it's really key to say that a lot of trans uh, young people will talk about being really young and say I knew at four I was a girl I wasn't one of those I wasn't so certain that when someone said to me you'll go to the school and it's all boys I was like fine it was when I got to an old boys school that I was like oh shit <laughs> and so what it was like for me was I didn't really notice the privilege or class of it that's something I've grown in consciousness of as someone who's older now and has mixed with more different types of people like if, mm. I should say I wasn't from a moneyed family what happened was that I went to this very unique Catholic school that primed me for the school and then I entered a scholarship exam and I got a scholarship mm. by this time my father had left so we were a one income household my mother had three children she was raising alone no partner one income my brother is autistic and has a learning disability that impair a lot of his independence for his whole life and yeah and, and a baby so my mum and I was the eldest so you know it it wasn't it wasn't like we were from this like huge privilege i was there on a scholarship and mm. i knew that there was a wealth disparity between me and the other boys and there was it was one of many disparities between me and the other boys yeah was that something that was made obvious to you by the other children there were tinges of it and i remember mm. if i'm being brutally honest when i was 12 or 13 i remember a slight anxiety about if friends were going to come to my house that my house would be much smaller it was a terraced house you know in an mm. area where most people would not wouldn't be attending private schools whereas that was not the case for my classmates i had a little bit of that but what i would say which is a is a theme that i could return to but um weirdly i don't know if this is true but at school 
you can have multiple things going on because I, I feel like there's a point when you're 13 or 14 that if you're going to get tagged with one thing to be bullied about it's going to be one thing and for me it was like I don't know if I can use this slur but like it was like faggot it's that that is that's where like the, the queerness at that point took over class or my background mm-hmm. And later on, it gave way, actually. I got more respect as I went through school because my school was academically selective and I was good at academics. So I wasn't well liked necessarily or well understood, but I was more respected, I guess. There was that tension, maybe. I knew I was from a slightly different background. And also I knew, for example, my mother's friends had kids who who didn't have this opportunity that I had had. And, you know, my mum was very good about being like, don't brag about your grades. Don't talk about your exams because you're luckier than these kids. Which <laughs> so like the th- very blunt thing you have to say to an eleven-year-old, like, don't ever boast. Mm. But I think it was kind of it's a weird thing to talk about. But I think it was kind of helpful. But it gave me this kind of which I still think actually affects my career now is an awareness that I have received advantages that other people have not comparable to me. But like also not being completely deluded that that's that's the reality yeah it's just very weird i mean like english public schools are insane to anyone that's never been to one especially boys mm. ones like we like the school uniform was like an elizabethan blue coat when we were in the choral days like queen elizabeth the first signed the charter for our school and they'd bring out this bookcase glass thing once a year for for our charter day like all of that's nuts um but also yeah like it was an all boys school and i think you know relevant to probably This podcast and people listening to it is, you know, I would never give a sob story about the class aspect of my school, but I was I was a trans kid in an all male environment for seven years. And that was tough because I think there's a lot of affinity. I think a lot of like I don't think it's just about being a trans girl. I think like interestingly, all the friends I was able to club together at that school all turned out to be gay men, Kel Surprise, quite camp gay men. I didn't realise I was selecting like a group of camp gay men <laughs> at 12, obviously, but that's who I did select. And I and I obviously think we gravitated towards each other. Mm. And I'm friends with a couple of them still. And I think, you know, you're acutely aware that when there are no girls around, and I don't, I don't know what a mixed, at that age, a mixed dynamic produces, but it certainly produces a lot of like you know, in a very immature way, hyper-performance and masculinity, homophobia is a way to perform your masculinity, like misogyny is a way to perform your masculinity. And so like, I actually, it sounds so nerdy. I loved my teachers, I loved my education. <laughs> um, and I lo- and I knew, always knew I was really lucky to be getting the education I was getting, but I didn't love, I didn't make many friends at school. It wasn't a very happy time. At that point, were you aware that you were a trans woman or were you, did you think, oh, I'm maybe I'm a gay man or did you? Yeah. Were you, did you think you were, you know, a different letter? Because I, I watched a thing that you did um, that was on YouTube where you said, oh, I've basically been every letter yes. of, <laughs> the, uh, of the queer alphabet. Yeah. No, I mean, that, I, I have been, but that was that was later. No, I think what happened was as your sexual awakening happens, yeah, like, I realised instantly I, I was attracted to boys and like... That, that was a thing. But I also sometimes had crushes on like female teachers. I, I, I was in a school with 500 boys, but I ne- I can never remember having this like intense crush on any of them. I used to fancy like men in the media or celebrities or like sometimes men, yeah. I, I never really like had a crush on my best friend or that classic kind of gay vibe. I think teenagers don't know what's a crush, what's like an ad- adult you admire, what's a female teacher you would really admire. And obviously now I'm like, what was that all about? Like maybe I just admired her hair and wanted that much for myself. But um <laughs> but yeah, so so it wasn't it just wasn't clear cut to me in a certain way. But there were certain there were certain things. So classic experiences of like millennial, slightly older millennial 
queer kids. I went on chat rooms talking to like 40-year-old men pretending to be a 23-year-old blonde woman when in fact I was a 14-year-old brunette boy. And like, what was that about? It was very explorative. Yes, sometimes there would be like sexual elements to the conversation. Obviously, there was exploration of like erotica porn, all that stuff. And so from all this, I kind of knew I wasn't straight and I was not a heterosexual boy, but I didn't know where to place it. And yeah, as I said, I had this kind of like, yeah, a certain group, particularly one or two close gay male friends. And I think there was this unconscious thing where I knew they were coming into their sexuality and we were being sort of bullied or being targeted a little bit in the same ways. But what was awful about it was that I was like, but I I don't feel like you either. And I, I think I always knew. So I, I never in my entire time at school kissed anyone, had sex with anyone, explored my sexuality. Um, whereas I knew like, yeah, gay male friends I was. I thought I was, like, I was told a lot I was a gay boy. So I kind of just accepted that as read. I threw myself into religion. Um, I, the kind of childhood religion I had had as a Catholic, which my mum had always been very light, moderate. And my mum never was a homophobe. And my mum never believed in the church's teachings on, say, like contraception or whatever. Like my mum was never that hardline. Whereas I kind of went quite hardline on myself and was like, your sexual desires are sin, masturbation's a sin, everything's a sin. And I, ne- I never applied it to anyone else. I only ever really applied it to myself. And I became more and more religious to a point where I had to have an intervention. <laughs> Even like a priest basically said to me when I was 15 years old, you have scrupulosity. There were saints that had it. It's basically like OCD for believing that you're constantly committing a sin and it's a mental illness. And because I would refuse to see a counsellor. And I, I just see all of that as a byproduct of this extreme confusion about what am I, who am I, where do I fit? And it must have been enormously isolating yes. to feel like that. So having something that is like, you know, that sort of makes sense to me because you go, well, something as big as like the church, this faith, I can throw myself into it. You know, there's this history of sort of people being celibate. I don't have to even acknowledge any of those thoughts. I can just do this. And then it takes away all these other feelings that I don't want to deal with. Yes, exactly. And the thing is, is that, as you say, it sounds so odd, but yeah, any Catholic who would be listening would know this, is that there's this history of like, you can read about saints, the history of celibacy, because there's this weird connection about like, yeah, you hear about eunuchs in the early church and celibacy. Mm. And it's like, well, if you if you become like celibate in this like very accepted social way, which the church provides, it's like you kind of degender yourself. It's like, I mean, like priests are men, I guess, like, but they... You know, they're not they're not performing the functions of a heterosexual man. Performing. And they often don't have that sort of displaying masculinity. Exactly, yeah. It's not like they're, they're constantly displaying that they're men. You yeah, know, exactly. it's... Well, I mean, also because a lot of them are gay, there's tea. But like... I mean, of course, sure, that comes into I mean, it. You have to, you have to appreciate it's that. But... It's, it's a vicious cycle where there's that case and then that means that the gay ones and the trans ones go in, <laughs> which I could have almost done, but yeah. Well, I read that because when I was reading, you said, like, you, you were looking at going to, when you're going to uni and you were like well I'll do drama English or I'll join the monastery yeah. Yeah. and was that really at one point were you like oh yeah that's what I'll do yeah basically the, the, it was a priest that stopped me from uh, in fairness it was a catholic priest he was a very like liberal modern one what was funny mm. is he asked if I was gay but this was the time that I'd had this intervention he was like are you gay because he was probably clocking something but he was like and I was like well no I don't think I am and obviously I was never going to admit that to a priest. And and there's other things, you know, here too that are more common. And maybe this sounds all a little bit far-fetched for a lot of people. But I think there's it, what it all went hand in hand with is the you're being called gay all the time. You're being called a faggot, etc. And it was very hard because there was just nowhere to talk about it. Like, because 
I couldn't, I was so close to my mum as a teenager because obviously I was her eldest child and she was a single parent. But I never felt like I could talk to her about it because it would open up a conversation I did not want to have because it was too overwhelming mm. because the next question would be, what are you? And it's like, well, I don't know, this is too overwhelming. Looking back, and I hope uh, younger kids have it now, is, you know, it's about your temperament and your personality is, I would have needed a gentle coaxing. I didn't need one time talking to a priest. I didn't need one time talking to a school council. What I clearly needed would have been like a relationship of trust with someone who would have reassured me that like it's okay to say one thing and then retract it and you don't have to. Mm. And the trouble I had too is as an intellectual, as tagged as an intellectual child and in many ways a mature one, but not an emotionally mature one, is you quite quickly develop a complex where it's like, well, you know, I'm clever, so I must, I must understand. You don't realize you're 14 or 15. It's like, I'm, I'm the authority on myself. So if I say this is the case, this is the case. And then what happens is you say certain things and you're like, that's not true because you're developing the whole time. You just get caught in a cycle of like having to basically be an authority. I think that's the different, I think that's the different, one of the many differences that you could point to as general trends between LGBTQ kids and cishet straight kids mm. is, well, at least when I was growing up, was that what what didn't scare me so much was maybe being a bit different, but was about like, yeah, having to be an authority on yourself and actually adults kind of expecting you to be like, well, what are you? Because if you're not the straight thing, that maybe that's fine, but like, come on, then so gay. Come on, just name it. Mm. And that was something I really, really struggled with. That carried on really much throughout school. And, and as I say, an all-male boys environment was just not a nurturing environment for that and and I don't yeah I don't think it could have been you know you we're we're sort of a similar age you're a little bit younger than me sure <laughs> but we're, we're a similar yeah. age and you know there were some gay men in the media a handful I mean a small handful of lesbians but there weren't any sort of trans people certainly not non-binary or, or any phrases like that that mm. I would have been aware of you know even even over really the last 10 years I've only really learned more about those you know different sorts of identities but certainly at that time and I remember sort of talking to Bethany Black when she came on the podcast about this often if there was a trans person that was in the media it was like this person's being outed and this is this and look at this and it's on the sun and it sort of became this sort of obviously the person's experience wasn't it'd be something that would be on like the Jerry Springer mm. show or things that would seem like just so, I mean, obviously looking back now, like well, even at the time it looked so hurtful, but there wasn't any language. I, I didn't feel like there was any language as a gay teenager mm. sort of going, I don't understand what this is and I don't have the language for it, so I'm just going to pretend it's not happening. But as someone that's trans then, I feel like, yeah, I mean, it, the language was so far away. It was, it really was. I mean, the only thing, like no one ever mentioned a trans person the entire I actually don't even remember anyone mentioning a trans person at, when I was at university. So like, mm. there was a person, I don't know what their gender was, but they were, I remember visibly gender non-conforming that used to walk past my school and people used to call them, they were a person that, you know, perhaps looked like they were assigned male at birth and presented in a more gender non-conforming feminine way. Sure. I think they were a bit gothy, that's very Bristol. <laughs> and and they used to be called a tranny by like, and I remember that, I remember that by boys in my class, but like, the homophobia was at that time the same level and and tranny sort of seemed to seem like i loved drag queens like i loved um when you said about gay men on tv like i liked um lily savage and stuff like that i always oh, loved drag queens i loved lily savage <laughs> yeah, I was I was obsessed obsessed she's on prime these. time like making I all mean, these jokes yeah i mean in, in a way like we've taken steps back now because i'm like would there be a drag queen <laughs> hosting a tv show 
like hosting Blankety Blank now. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, it's just like it seemed to go so under the radar. Like now it's like, yeah. oh, RuPaul's Drag Race. And now we've got to have discourse about it, which is good. But like, it's like, it's just very odd that it was right there. And like your nan would watch it and be <laughs> yeah. like, oh, okay, everyone's yeah. watching well, it. Well, that's the sure. funny thing about drag in Britain. Yeah. And then I think, you know, and there was a growth. Like I remember I watched Graham Norton in the very early days of like, was it so Graham Norton or whatever? So like mm-hmm. gay men did provide a bit of reference and, and lesbians, to be honest. Like I watched Ellen when I was really young. And I remember the coming out episode really, really well. So I was clearly always interested in queer people. But yeah, trans people, it was just it was just that bit further behind. The first time I ever saw a trans woman on television was a program called, I talk about it in my book, um, There's Something About Miriam. And it was a reality TV show. Miriam Rivera was a... Uh, Mexican 21 year old trans model very beautiful very feminine it was very popular at the time to have these like different spins on dating shows there was one called playing it straight where they had to guess these women had to guess which one of the men was gay I remember I looked at this on Wikipedia recently it came from a Dutch pilot that was called Harkin de Homo which apparently the original (laughs) title in Dutch was look for the homo I mean like (laughs) just a wild time of reality TV (laughs) where they discover gay people and were like how can we use sexuality as a plot trick as a new look and so yeah this was the same thing in essence was that this group of men were vying to date her she was stunning what's it called in Shakespeare uh, the dramatic irony was that we the audience knew that she was a trans woman and they as they constantly re-emphasized she was a pre-op trans woman she still had a penis which obviously at the time was very sensationalized so it was like oh we're all watching this and all these men are trying to get with her and some of them kissed her and some of them were like you know basically made out with her maybe got like to fondling or whatever and it's like well they don't know she's you know so this goes on and then she picks the winner and then they you know and then she announces to him and in front of all the other men that she's trans and they all just start laughing and all the men sued the production company for exploitation (gasps) sexual assault all of this stuff and I, I wouldn't pretend this had a hugely traumatic effect on me, but I think it's an interesting example of like what that does to someone, like what that says yes. about, to me it wasn't I'm the, I'm Miriam and this is going to happen to me at that point. But what it was was this is someone that's like a freak show and I like that's not something you could ever be. Like that's, this is reality TV nonsense. This isn't you, you're just a normal person. And so it's warped in the same way. But I think it still came back to bite me when I did transition because when you do transition and and date men as I do, like, how can that not be going through your head? Like, you know, is, is, Mm. you know, the first time that like a man agrees to like go on a date with you and you say, you know, is, is, are they going to laugh at me? Is he going to laugh at me? Like, how can that like, just like that show I watched when I was 14, when I was like coming into my sexual awareness. So all of this. But it's carrying that shame, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's like you, like you know, have feeling different, being queer, you know, that's something that people might laugh at. Yeah. So be, you know, be careful. You know, look at all these people that are now mocking this woman, or have even put lawsuits out. I mean, it's just, I can imagine that that would be something that would be like retrospectively more painful. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. But I think retrospective pain is a really key. I don't know. A lot of people I know, and I would say this of myself, like sometimes the the experience of like what people said to me at school, the way they behaved to me at school, boys grabbing, like, because people don't realize as well that homophobia as it manifests me amongst boys, I think people get that it's like slurs, but some people don't get it's quite sexualized because there's this like odd mm. dynamic where like homophobic boys can also be like weirdly, <laughs> it sounds weird, but like in a quite, obviously in a non-consensual and in a bad way, in a way that we should be teaching kids better, but it's like sort of like being explorative too. And, and I never really registered it as odd at the time because it was all I knew. And then you get older 
<laughs> and then you get all your gay friends and you, you suddenly become accepting of yourself and you're sort of out for the first time. And then you get really angry, like almost like radically so on behalf of your former self. And you're almost on the war path being like, everyone I went to school with was a prick. All my teachers were pricks. The school should be burned down. <laughs> like, I was like that for like a good couple. And then you settle down again and are like, well, it was all in context. And also we're old now. So it was probably, probably things have changed, hopefully. <laughs> when I sort of think of myself as a teenager, I feel quite... I feel quite sad for her. Mm. And then I have this like, well, I need to protect her. And it's, like, that, that, it's been 20 years. Nothing can really happen, Suze. Like, you, the, you, you just need to process it. Well, yeah. Well, this is the odd thing is when I've encountered, and yeah, I used, as I said, I used to work at Stonewall. And, you mm. know, they have like a thing at Pride events called Youth Pride, where there are all these young people. Mm. And you'll meet these like, like 14, 15 year old kids who are like, I'm chair of my school's LGBTQ society. And obviously it's great. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it is great and it's fantastic. But there's also part of me that's like, I can't relate to you at all. So you're not <laughs> going to develop a ketamine problem and you're not talking to weirdos online. Like, I don't know that we're the same. <laughs> I have a cousin who is 19 now, 18 or 19. I mean, um, but but if you looked at his Instagram, you would think that he was like a 25-year-old guy. He's got a handlebar moustache. He's very, very cool. He's very gay and very cool. <laughs> yeah. But when he was like 14, he came out by saying to his mum, she said, are you gay? And he said, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and she was like, I'm fine with it. And he was like, yeah. And then he's like, oh, by the way, the the last 12 editions of Vogue under my bed <laughs> and then he left there and then he just like went out with his friends for the day and I was like I mean that that, that is aspirational isn't it <laughs> it's wonderful and I love it but and like you know his mum's my cousin and obviously she was super cool about it and no one might like why would anyone sort of you know I'm already in the family so they were aware of gay people yeah but but his you know his experience was so different to mine because people were like you're queer and he was like yeah <laughs> And whereas I was like, no, don't say that to me. Why would you say that? Stop hating me. He'll have to see a therapist a lot less than me in his mid twenties, which is wonderful. Yeah, it is. But we haven't. I mean, we didn't even really touch on coming out. So I'm going, and another mm. thing, because obviously uh, I I had the as I as you kind of referenced with the kind of multiple letters. Is I came out as I um, should say yeah, I came out as trans when I was 26 in, in terms of family life. <clears throat> but before mm. that, yeah, I'd, I came out as gay. And that was, you know, that was difficult. And I could, when I realised, when all the pieces of the puzzle came together and I realised I was going to have to have a sit-down conversation with my mum again, I was so angry. I was like, I cannot believe I have to do this shit again. Because it doesn't get any easier. And I think the reason I want to say this, I think, is because... I used to be a bit more obnoxious about it a few years ago where I used to be like, if only I could have been a gay man, it's so easy. And now I'm kind of, or a lesbian, but it's like, actually, I've grown up and realised actually it's all about what your life experience is and where you come from and, and, and stuff like that. So we, I don't really like that kind of one-upmanship. But because I was kind of pushed, because the trouble is, is that I think there's a narrative in the British media right now amongst trans young people that like, gay kids are being pushed into transition because homophobic parents and teachers would rather have, so someone like me, they would have rather have a straight girl than a gay boy. And I'm just like, this, it makes me so angry and insane because it's like, when people realized I was queer and there's nothing that you could do about that really, and there, ne there never really was, like it was, that was a kind of fait accompli, is I was pushed, and I'm not in an aggressive way, but just by every social messaging. I told some people when I was at university, because I, 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 I did, I was very gender fluid at university. That was when I sort of came out, sort of started telling people I was gay. 
as I say, when I say like, I actually weirdly did, was a bit more bisexual at the time because I think I was just a bit more experimental. But weirdly, all the girls that I kind of was a bit bi with were lesbians. So it was all a bit girly anyway. You know, there was one person that I sort of said to, I actually would feel happier if I was a girl that like, was a woman all the time. I think like if I could live my life as a woman, that would have just been so much easier. And they were just like, well, you can't. Like, obviously, because like, when you graduate, you're going to have to get a serious job, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, you're right. No, I just can't. I mean, it wasn't like a heavy conversation, but like it was, it was a million things like that over a decade that like all people are saying is like, you know, and it, and it got more and more extreme. It's like, well, just be a gay man in the week and then you can be like a girl at the weekend. Like, you know, and you make all these bargains. people say that Yeah, to people would say that to me, yeah. And people would say, well, you can just be, you can dress up at the weekend. Like you're just like, you know, and I, <clears throat> I think what's weird is Drag Race, RuPaul's Drag Race has made drag so popular now. When I was mm. when I was at university, it wasn't as popular. Drag queens, I think, were kind of not as popular, and it was very male, and it was sometimes quite sexist. It was quite old school drag. Mm. But I think if I was now, I don't know because it's all opened up a bit. But like, you know, maybe out of I never became a drag queen, but I I know trans women who have become drag queens, and I understand it. I understand the mentality. Mm. It's like oh, I can contain it by, but you know, obviously there are some men who do drag, and that and that's very important to them, or non-binary people, or women who do drag, and it's like well. This is a contained part of my life. This is a performance, whatever. But clearly, for some people, it's actually trying to compartmentalize something that's just not, not going well, away. Yes, because in a, you can understand how you know compartmentalizing. You can go, well, I don't want to have to to change my life or to do this big thing. But if I can do this thing, that loads of people understand that this is a thing that sometimes gay men do. And I know that some, you know, that, that lots of other people do drag as well, but I'd, on, yeah. on the whole, there's more gay men that do it. You know, but everyone understands that. People know what it is. It means that you dress up, you have a character. You know, you can understand how people would go, okay, well, that's a way that I can do this and it be understood yeah. by the sort of mainstream by life, by people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's so true. But then also, you know, there were elements of it that just weren't understood because obviously, yeah. So at university, I sort of expressed this like gender fluid. I would turn up to, so I went to Oxford and did English. Like, you know, Oxford's a very conservative place. And what happened is I'd been really mm. clever at school and, and it had been a, and a single sex school. And I'm doing clever in inverted commas in case people are thinking I sound like a wanker. Uh, I mean, like I was tagged <laughs> as that. That was my identity. And then you arrive at somewhere like Oxford and that's everyone's identity. And suddenly you're not the cleverest. So I was like, I need to get something else. And then suddenly there were girls. And then it was like, I fell in with a group of people, like not just girls, but like, where I was, we were just like, it's stupid. We were all overprivileged twats too. But you're like, oh, Oxford's full of overprivileged twats. It's all just like dressed stupidly all the time. Like everyone's wearing suit, like dicky bows and stuff like that. So I started wearing like gold lame. It was, it was new rave. It was a bad look. And I started wearing makeup. And because I looked quite feminine um, naturally, especially, yeah, at that time, like, because I'm a late bloomer in all senses, I think <laughs> I didn't have facial hair yet, even when I was like 19. I often would sort of pass for a girl in the street and yeah and I think there was there was a fluidity there and obviously nowadays again you look back and you're like someone would say that's queer it's not gay it's queer it's non-binary you're gender fluid but no one talked mm. about this they were sort of like you're gay but not like any of the people at the LGBT soccer are gay because they're just there in their blazers trying to shag other boys and you don't seem to be doing it because I wasn't like sex was not the main pursuit of my university life it was makeup <laughs> you know at that time, extreme femininity and people can't see me now, but I'm, I don't present in a hugely feminine way at this point in my life. It was something at that time 
that was an exploration about something else that was uncomfortable in me that hadn't gone away. And gay men didn't get it as well, because gay like 19-year-old gay men are all amping up their masculinity to be hot to each other. <laughs> that was the last thing I wanted to do. Like obviously I would occasionally um until I transitioned I would dip into gay sex, but it was very confusing. Probably, yeah very more confusing in some ways than like a school because it was like because obviously I would fancy them it's like I'm having sex with the gender the person I want to have but not not in the way I want to have (laughs) when you mentioned about passing Mm -hmm. did you enjoy that did that sort of make sense yeah yeah was that were you did that like give you like a bit of a a thrill of being like oh I'm yeah again these the thrills this is what I realized when I came out as trans and I came out as trans again and when I say I was 26 I (laughs) I did it in the most cowardly way possible I got drunk waited for my housemates everyone I talked I talked to two people about it before waited for my housemates to go to bed it was (laughs) 4am and then I wrote a blog post half cut and then posted it to my Facebook page and then passed out and then I woke up at like 2pm the next day and it had like 100 likes and everyone found out that I was trans very messy but like got the job done but what I said in that blog post and it's it's since been uh, eradicated from the internet because I find it just a bit sincere and earnest is that often when I was piecing together you know it was very complicated because I never felt like a woman this isn't what it feels like to me I feel like myself but when I realised... But I don't know what that's meant to feel like, because as someone that doesn't... Like, you know, I'm a, a gay woman, but I don't... I don't know what this is meant to feel like. Yeah. I just know what I... Like, I know what well, I feel like. this is the like. thing, and I think, like, sometimes some... Well, lots of people, but some people who are genuinely curious and some people who are very transphobic, well, something they'll use particularly against trans women is, well, how could... Especially women, cis women, will be like, well, how... You know, and particularly, I think, you know, for the... And I think it's worth saying that there are, you know, lesbian and bisexual women in the LGBT movement. And I understand it because if they've been... Especially if they've been butch or had a crisis around womanhood themselves, what they find very hard is a person, a male, basically saying, I'm happier being in the space that you have been forced into, that you found difficult even if they still identify as a woman yeah and I understand Mm. that tension I obviously don't relate to the way that people if they take it to a transphobic place and I wish that there was opportunities to have healthier conversations about that but yeah what people will sometimes fire at you is like well what does it mean to feel like a woman it's like (laughs) I there's a the trans youtuber contrapoints Natalie Wynn said something very funny once where she was like no one feels like a woman apart from a certain subset of gay men and Shania Twain. <laughs> like, it's true. It's true. No one feels like a woman. What, what, I, what I would always say is like, I felt, I remember when people would say to me, you seem more like a girl than a boy. And there was like a girl that I'd had like a brief, like hand-holding, very cute affair with, who was like, you seem more like a, one of my girlfriends than one of my boyfriends. Because she was one of those like progressive bi girls. And then, and then um, yeah, like boys at school would say it all the time. And then, yeah, as I got to university and I was dressing in a more feminine way, there were times where I'd go to the gay nights and I think sometimes some of the girl, queer girls there would think I was a queer girl. And it wasn't like, oh, this is great because I can get off of them, actually. It was more like, oh, I'm being like seen in some way. And I pieced together these sort of experiences and they were very slow. And then it's just the stuff like, would I rather... I know it sounds very crass and crude. I'm not even sure I want to get married, but it was like... Would I want to be someone's boyfriend? No. Would I want to be someone's girlfriend? Yeah, maybe. Would I want to be someone's wife? Yeah, maybe. Would I like to be a bride on my wedding date? Would I want to, do I want to be my mum's son? Not really. It was all of these, like, it's not about feeling like a woman, like all these feminine feelings. It's just like in the society in which I live, everything makes more sense to me if I'm on this, if we have to have this division, Mm. if we have to have two sets of seats, I want to sit with the women. And that's the best way I can express it. And I think when I came to that realisation... 
those experiences of like it wasn't about being feminine being pretty or being it was about oh well these people are putting you on the side of the women and that felt more comfortable to me and was it a relief like I know that you say like you put out that Facebook (laughs) post of which you know now you've made sure isn't on the internet anymore (laughs) but was there an element of like not the penny dropping because I'm sure that you had an awareness long before you sort of shared it but was this was part of you like I can just deal with this now I can just be myself now. Or is that really reductive? It's not reductive. I think I would say, what I would say is for sometimes, and I think for all queer people, for, for trans people sometimes, the coming out is, the, is actually can be the start of a whole new host of problems. The trouble is, is that, I, yeah, I'm really wary of always sell, like, you know, this pressure to sell transition as the answer to all your problems. You get new ones. They just are the slightly better ones. It's, and especially at the beginning is what I always describe it as, especially if you then realise you have, and I realised I've been living with gender dysphoria this whole time. I won't go into detail, but there were ways in which I treated my body, which I look back as I was abusing a body because I did not feel, I felt alienated from it. And it did not feel like mm. something I should take care of. And I, and it used to lead to thoughts like, you know, not, not, not always suicidal thoughts, but just thoughts of like, I don't think I'm going to live to be a great age, partly because I'm not looking like, you know, even if it's like just chain smoking, taking every drug on offer, is like, is what you're, what you're doing is kind of saying, I don't really care about this thing. And then, and, and then when you realise you have gender dysphoria... And that's maybe the root of it. It's like, well, now I have to do something about that. And we live in, you know, this is what my writing is about now as a, as a writer mm. and activist. It's about this is, doesn't stop. Is that we exist, we live, we famously live in a society. And if you want treatment for gender dysphoria, that's slow. That's stigmatized. That's when you have to start telling people not only to your mum, oh, I'm, I don't feel that much like a boy. And I actually feel, it's like, actually, no, I'm going to be physically changing in front of you. I'm going to have a, you know, a different set of pronouns that you're going to have to tell all your friends about um i'm going to have to like possibly change my name and lose the name of your father that was given to me like all of these things are very deep and emotional that's terrifying and i think for a lot of trans people that can be tough and and the waiting times on the nhs for first appointments even even if you're just investigating if people don't know it's like now we're looking at like people getting referred now i mean there's some estimates that say it's up over 10 years in terms of when they could be expected to be seen if nothing changes. When it was me, it was like two and a half years. Oh, that is a long, long time. Yeah, and I weirdly say, I weird, the analogy I would use is if if you're in a boat and you're adrift at sea, that's really tough and you might be terrified that you're going to be stuck there forever or you're going to drown or something and no one's going to come. But what's worse is to see an island and not be able to get to the island and to be like... You shoot a flare and no one notices and you think, will that, you know, you're screaming, will these people on the island, are there people on the island, will they see me? That's actually mm. more, and you could still drown. I think that's, that's to me, what the experience of when you first come out as trans publicly, but you don't have, one, the emotional intelligence to the community of people around you telling you, it's a very lonely experience. And what I would say to any young or any trans person, young in years, someone that comes out as trans is find trans friends older trans friends more experienced trans friends immediately because you need people to be like you're not like in a weird way you're not special because it can be terrifying to be like I'm the only this is this is a huge drama you're the only trans person you've ever known suddenly all my and I had loads of gay male and lesbian friends like very few straight friends actually but none of them could relate to this experience and 
I had to look elsewhere. And it took me a time to realize that because like, yeah, you, and you don't become the healthiest person. I was drinking a lot at that time. I was like obnoxious, like people were trying, like cis friends, but maybe LGB would try and help me. And I'd be like, fuck off. You don't know, you know, drunk. Oh, you don't fucking know what this is like. And I'd only come out like two months ago. And so you're not actually, you're not your highest self, Susie. <laughs> right. Good. I think that it's, I mean, I've said this about three times during this conversation, but I think so much of it, yeah, it just all makes so much sense. Like, I'm so excited to read your book. Like, why did you decide to write it? Because let's just cover that before we finish so that, because people can order it now. <laughs> yes, they can. They can pre-order it. So let's chat a little bit about that before we finish. Yeah, so the book is called The Transgender Issue and Argument for Justice. And the I'll talk about, yeah, why I wrote this book initially. It was accumulation of years of journalism and writing I had done. Because of all the stuff I've talked about, my own experience, I came out in sort of 2014, 2015, a very different time to the one we're living in now. And there was a brief window of better acceptance um, because like, I don't know, Laverne Cox had been on the cover of Time and, and Caitlyn Jenner had come out. And I came out writing that and I had already been working a bit as a writer and writing a bit about gender and makeup and like much more frivolous things. And obviously lots of editors were like, write an essay about being trans, write this. And I would say like, I wasn't actually, I didn't really know what I was fucking talking about. And I really shouldn't have been writing about it. And what happened is as my career evolved. I moved away from the personal stuff. So I'm happy to chat to you about the personal stuff, but I don't write about myself anymore. One, because I'm middle class and white and Actually, I have a pretty easy life now as a trans woman in Britain, comparatively. So what I looked at is, where are we at in Britain? The media is so hostile to trans people. The Times and the Sunday Times, the sort of newspaper of record, these like very things that like my ex-boyfriend's dad would read. Last year I had over 300 articles. So over almost one a day on trans people, all negative. We're in the midst of this huge backlash and the history of trans literature in the English language, and particularly in the UK, is like trans memoir, which is like serves a purpose, but it's like one trans person, often a trans woman, being telling her story, and it's all very medical and talking about her surgery and stuff like that. And I thought, actually, no, what we need is I'd looked at books like Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Renée de Lodge or Natives by Akala. And I was like, there is no book in Britain like this about, I know this from my work, both with Stonewall, both with doing reported journalism, was I, this isn't my experience, but trans people have it fucking tough, especially working class trans people, the girls I know who do sex work, black trans people, and that's in Britain. And a lot of people know it's bad in America, same thing as with race, but they don't get it because no, our media has failed us. They have not informed the public about like, I've just said that about the, the waiting list being almost over 10 years now for a first appointment here. Like very few members of the public know that. They all they and know about. I feel about... like I should know that. <laughs> like I'm a queer person who's, you know, engaged in, you know, all aspects of the LGBTQ plus community. But, you know, I thought you were gonna say about five years, but the ten is yeah. yeah, I mean, and I should know that. The reason you don't is because we've been failed by our media and the and and it can feel like, you know, Twitter can feel like screaming, as you probably know, Twitter's quite a toxic place. It's like screaming into the abyss. We have much more powerful enemies. I'd for years I'd done a bit of like going on Newsnight and arguing with a bigot, and I'd done a bit of like writing a piece in the Guardian and then getting abuse on trolled for it on for days. And I was like, well, what has everyone I admire ever done? Is that when they've not been able to have a platform, so they've created their own. And I was like, well, I'm a writer. 
the only thing I can do is I'm a relatively well-known, privileged person. I can probably get a book deal. <laughs> and so I was like, well, let's just do that. So my book, the principle of my book, it's it's a left wing. And I should say that because I, I think those are where the answers come from. Kind of analysis of all of the issues from youth to adulthood to old age that face British trans people right now in terms of housing, prison system, healthcare, and also an explanation for why LGBTQ or is why the trans, because people are like, what, drop the T. Trans women are trying to like compel lesbians to date them, things like that. Um, is is why are these divisions here? Like, why why do some people believe this? Why do some people, why are there divisions in the LGBT community and what, what's the way to move past them? So like, I'm not saying I have all the answers, but the book is an exploration of these issues. I try to be as honest and frank as fair as possible, but come to conclusions that are ultimately pro-trans <laughs> because I, I feel like what we need is unfortunately, someone needs to be like, this is, this is the way that we actually do it in a humane way to trans people because all we hear now is about concerning cisgender people the, the rest of the population's anxieties about us and it's always sort of trans people that have to take the l as the kids would say <laughs> um and i'm interested in a way that's like if we're talking about trans women in prisons there are going to be some violent trans women who go sent to women's prisons or or who want to transfer to a women's prison which is more the case but it's like if we're going to unwrap that conversation let's look at how all lgbt people are treated in prison let's look at how all women are treated in prison let's look at the prison system like, I, you know to me that's not holistic it, you know it has to be holistic it has to be like well mm. if you actually want to help prisoners then let's talk about that let's not just talk about scapegoating every trans woman with a handful of trans criminals that was not an elevator pitch. I mean, if it was, if it was the Empire State Building, it would be an elevator pitch. <laughs> I mean, also, you don't need to give me an elevator pitch, but I just wanted you to have an opportunity to talk about it because I've been reading loads of your stuff and I, I honestly think you're brilliant. Um, if I can just ask you one more question and then I'll leave you to your day. So the thing that I always ask on this show is, and you can think of this as sort of a version of yourself, you can think of it as a younger you, or you can think of it as someone that's listening maybe today and that feels like, oh, finally, someone's, gets me or someone understands me if you could give that person like you know a bit of a hug or a bit of reassurance about about I guess about just existing or about being themselves what would you say okay so there's one silly element one fun element so if I was looking at my teenage self I would be like don't worry that you can't pluck your eyebrows like the girls because that will go out of fashion and then one day you'll be revered for your thick eyebrows <laughs> and listen I, I'm I'm looking at Sean right now her eyebrows are I mean, it's not the first time that I thought during this interview what great eyebrows you have. So that is absolutely true. <laughs> but the lead out from that is that things change. I think that's the key element, the takeaway from the eyebrows, is things change. And I know Juno Dawson said when she was on this podcast, patience is a virtue. It's what I would say to a younger person is that you will not always feel the same way. You might not always feel better, you might not always feel worse. But things do change. And the key thing that I would say to someone in my position is you don't have to have all the answers there's especially when you're young you think there's so much pressure to have a definitive answer on what and who you are and especially in relation to gender and sexuality but you could wake up at 40 and have a completely different sexual orientation there's plenty of people that have that experience and that's fine and you can backtrack like feel free two years later to be like I was wrong <laughs> like actually I'm pansexual you know these things aren't a huge loss of face like you, you don't you're not going to look as that's what I would say you're not going to look as ridiculous so be patient things change and accept the fact that things change and they will change about you that was perfect Sean <laughs> thank you so much that's all right no thank you for having me 
Well, that was the excellent Sean Fay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. We'll be back next week with another episode. We've got four more in the series. It'll take us up to episode 15. Then we're going to have a little break and then we'll be back with series four. But until then, if you want to get in touch with me, you always can. I'm on Twitter and on Instagram or you can email me at hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. You have a great week and I'll chat to you next. Bye. Bye.